Welcome to Connecting the Docs, a podcast from the State Archives of North Carolina, where archivists connect archival materials to fascinating and true stories from the past. We deliver rare and often overlooked topics related to North Carolina's storied history. Now here's your host, John Haran. Hello, and welcome to Connecting the Docs, a podcast about the North Carolina State Archives. I'm your host, John Haran. Today, we are excited to kick off a new season of the podcast with a new series exploring the winding road that is the journey of an archival record. This series will take you down the path of a record that includes describing, digitizing, and accessibility. But in this episode, we're starting at the beginning with records retention and appraisal. We will have two guests on today to share their immense knowledge of the collection and how they came to be retained. First, producer and regular on this show, Josh Hager. Hello, John. Nice to be here. And next, our very own appraiser and often co-pilot on many of my oral histories, Colin Reeve. Hello. As I alluded to earlier, at the end of this journey, researchers use records in the State Archives search room or online, but there's a lot of work that gets a record from where an agency created it to the hands of a researcher. Let's start at the very beginning. What is a public record? Well, I'll take that one, John. It's actually defined in, st- in statute, um, sp- specifically North Carolina General Statute 132, which says that all documents, papers, letters, maps, photographs, films, sound recordings, magnetic or other tapes, electronic data processing records, artifacts, regardless of physical form or characteristics made or received, pursuant to law or ordinance in connection with the transaction of public business is a public record. So essentially what that boils down to is if it's made, if it's a record that's created in the course of public business, it's a public record. So this this podcast we're doing now is a, a public record. And then there's another statute GS-121, which establishes the state archives and empowers the Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to sort of establish a records management system. And through, through, through that, we have records retention schedules, which we will get into later. All right. Yeah, I mean... it. That's a that's a quite broad definition, and we'll get into those retention schedules as as you mentioned. But can you give me some examples of public records? Yeah, I'll take that one, John, because actually, what I want to do is is hand it back to you because what Colin and I have done is a, is an exercise that we provide. We do a lot of training with state and local agencies throughout North Carolina on a regular basis, and we always ask them, "Is this a public record?" So we're going to give you three examples. Of records, and we want you to tell me and tell us if you think that's a public record or not. Sound good, John? Do I have a choice? <laughs> not really. <laughs> okay, then it sounds fine. <laughs> so our first one, you have been out of the office all morning doing an oral history. When you returned to the office, one of your colleagues took a phone message for you, and they put a post-it note on your desk to say to call Jane back at Smith & Associates. Uh, she called this morning to ask about her donation. Is that post-it note on your desk a public record? I, I'm going to go with no. Colin, let him know the answer. Um, you are incorrect. And get no points. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't know there it, were points involved. <laughs> <laughs> because it was made in connection with your job as a state employee, it is a public record. The fact, you know, that it was... If it had been someone just said, phone your wife, it probably wouldn't be, but because it specifically says phone whoever Josh says you have to phone about, you know, your work, by definition that is a public record. Um, it's a what we will call a, a transitory r- record and have a very short lifespan so that once you've got that note, you've made your phone, phone call, that record has served its, its pur- purpose. You don't have to keep it but for that time that it exists it is a public record oh there you go learn something new there yeah you wouldn't think so Mm. but those post-its are public records under that broad definition sure Mm. so 
in a similar vein, you receive an email from the director of your section. And she says, I appreciate all you staff. I've bought you bagels from the shop down the, down the street. They're available in the break room. Is that email a public record? Well, um, I, I think I lean towards no because it's not in the order of everyday business to have uh, a bagel. It's more like what Colin said about the memo, phone your wife. Mm. This, is, this is maybe in that vein. That's why I lean towards no. But if you tell me yes, I'm not going to be surprised. <laughs> it's no. <laughs> All right. But, but again, with the cake, if the email says we're going to have a bagel break to talk about our new program that we're going to do, so it has this work element tied into it, that would then make it a public record. So it's, it's always the content to what's in it, not what it is. Yeah, so if the email had said, come meet in the break room for bagels, and we're going to talk about our next project, then it's a public record. Mm. Yeah, that um, makes sense. How many points do I get for that, just out of curiosity? 15,000. Wow, okay. I'm putting that in my back pocket. There you go. But you may lose them on this double or nothing final question. Okay, let's have it. One of the step members here at the archives is extremely passionate about disc golf. Okay. They love disc golf with all of their heart, and they're a super fan. Sure. But one of the major disc golfers has just been disqualified from the national tournament because they're using a non-regulation Frisbee. Oh, boy. The staff member, during their lunch break on their phone, but at the office, has gone on their Twitter to create a 45-tweet thread explaining how the National Disc Golf Association is full of injustice, and this is a wrong that must be righted immediately. Hashtag save Phil the thrower. <laughs> Is that tweet a public record? Well, um, beyond that, that's oddly specific. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, it's not about business, so I'm going to lean there too and say it's it's not a public record. But it, you know, once again, I wouldn't be surprised. You're correct. It's right. not. Uh, one of the things we have to clarify is the device you use doesn't matter, and where you create it doesn't matter. It's entirely content. So the fact that they wrote that tweet in their office doesn't make it public records. But if they did a Twitter tirade about, say, a law that's being considered on their personal phone and the law deals with their job, then that could be a public record and could be considered correspondence or publicity records for that position. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's on your personal device or your public device or whatever. It is entirely about the fact that it's public business. If it is, public record. If it isn't, it's not. Right, Colin? Yep. Yeah, so it seems like then there's a lot of records out there that are being created constantly because, you know, this definition is so broad. And maybe, I mean, Colin, you mentioned the post-it note and how transitory that is mm. and, and, and when it fulfills its life, but... There's a ton of stuff coming in. The archives surely can't take all of it. So what happens then? You're right, John. I mean, we can't take it all and we don't take it all. It's, I think it's important at this point to say that there are two types of records, really. Um, what we will call the record copy and the reference copy. And what the archives deals with and what the retention schedules deal with is the record copy, which is the copy held by the records custodian, which is sort of, you know, almost answering the same questionnaire as to what is the records custodian. And probably the best way to look at that is each ESA HR would send out in the fall an email saying what their winter weather policy is for for agency employees about you know how to get to work take care in snow etc cetera, etc cetera. and that email is going to go to hundreds maybe thousands of employees the record copy is going to be the one that stayed with hr because they created the record all the other ones that i get josh gets you get who anybody else gets is a reference copy we 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 can keep that as long as short, 
short, for as long as or short as we want to. So I mean, if you want to keep it to the spring so that you know what you have to do if it snows, great. If, if you then think, well, it's the same one that they sent out last year, I know what it says, I'll discard it as soon as it arrives. Again, that that is well, you know, within what we are expected to do as state employees. So what what we deal with is the record copy. And the one caveat with that, or the one sort of exception to that, is obviously if if you receive something from outside your agency, you know, from a member of the of the public saying, "Can you come and take my oral oral history?" You then become the record the record custodian of that record because it came from outside the agency. Obviously. Mrs. Smith, who wrote to you, is not such not subject to North Carolina public records law, so you can't expect them to keep a copy. So you become the custodian. So it is a lot of records, but we can narrow it down a lot by only focusing focusing on the record copy. And within focusing in the record copy. We actually don't just say all record copies come to the archives or all record copies have the same standard. Just like content is the most important factor for determining if a record is a public record, we also have built what we call a retention schedule or the functional schedule that provides an overview for how long you have to keep any particular record regardless of format. And it's a bit like any mail you might you might get at home it's do you keep it do you destroy it because that's really your two options and then if you do decide you're going to destroy it when are you going to de destroy it and what's the trigger that's going to make you think i need to to destroy it and that's essentially what the records retention schedule is it identifies records by their type and says, you know, it will be kept permanently and it could be kept at the, the agency that creates it. It could be transferred to the, uh, the archives. If it's not kept permanently, it can be destroyed after X years or after a certain event or going back to the post-it note after you've made your phone call. Yeah, the functional schedule is actually a fairly recent innovation. In previous years, we used to create a retention schedule for each division of each state agency. So there was literally over 100 schedules active at any given time, and sometimes even more than that. And sometimes they weren't always the same across divisions. The functional schedule streamlined that process. Now there's one schedule for all state agencies. So every single state employee can look in one place to see how long they have to keep a certain record. And that schedule is always available on the website for the state archives. I would say, I mean, Josh has just said several times, state, state agencies and the functional schedule. And the functional schedule does apply to state agencies. But there's also other separate schedules that apply to local agencies like the register of deeds for example or local health authorities etc and although the principles apply like gs 132 and 121 would still apply to those records they have their own set, separate set of schedules with different rules albeit it still comes down to do you keep the record or do you destroy the record and when do you destroy it if you do? But I think today, to keep things simple, we are going to focus on state agencies and the functional schedule. Yeah, so it's, it's one schedule for all agencies and that's where we're going to focus in on. Now, I think there might be another game coming. You'd be right. Well done, John. Because this time we want to see if you can guess how long a record is going to be kept. Now, the good thing is, for in a real situation, you don't have to guess. Like I've said, the schedule is available on our website. 
And our staff here in the records analysis unit, uh, one of their primary functions is to assist state employees figure out where records fall on the schedule. So most people don't have to guess, but you're not most people, John. <laughs> so uh, good luck in, in our yeah. guess, guessing game. The first example is an employee's official personnel file. How long do you think that's retained? Well, let me get some, let me get some first. Uh, what, what kind of scale are we talking about here? We're talking usually about years. There are some records that are shorter. I mean, transitory records are pretty much immediately. Uh -huh. There are some re records on the schedule that are days or months. Uh -huh. But in this exercise, every record is at least one year uh -huh. and up to permanent. Uh -huh. So that's your range. Yeah. I think... It's a wide range. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> it certainly is a wide range. I think personnel files, that seems like something that's indefinite. Mm. No points. No points. Well, I, I don't. Well, I don't start strong. Some points because yeah. some people think personnel files are pretty quick, actually. Uh -huh. So you're you're leaning on the right side, but it's not quite permanent. Okay. Personnel files have a retention of thirty years. Okay. After the date of separation. Okay. Not the date you started as an agent. Sure. So, if you, somebody was hired in 1980 and just retired last year. Well, first of all, they had a very long career, mm -hmm. uh, but the trigger started on the 30 years retention started in 2021, yeah. not in 1980. So there are a lot of personnel files still around that the people left in the 90s because they haven't quite met the retention clock yet. The reason it's so long is actual federal law. Mm. There's federal statutes in place that you have to keep these files around so that you can document employment for retirement benefits. Oh, that makes sense. Sure. That makes sense. Also, never was going to get 30. I mean, it was just, you know. It's a weird one. That's why I'm mm. glad it's published. <laughs> um, but well done to think that it was longer rather than shorter. Yeah, thank you. Uh, the second example, circulation statistics from a, from a library. That seems like something that could go pretty, pretty quickly. So a couple years? One year after creation. Okay. So well done. That one's a good instinct on that one, too. And last one, uh, Colin, do you want to give him the last one? Correspondence of agency heads. And it's a slightly trick question. Uh, let's see. <laughs> uh, correspondence between agency heads. I don't know. Let's go, let's go long. Why not? Let's go for permanent. The short answer is it depends. And one of those is permanent. Um, what what the schedule says for things like elected officials, appointed officials, those in very high level positions, it's permanent, and they come to the ar they come to the archives. We then have a slightly lower tier, if you like, which are what we call capstone positions, and those are subject to an appraisal. I mean, they are going to be kept permanently. It, but the appraisal, which we might talk about again l later, will then look at do these permanent records stay with the agency or do they move to the archives? So your instinct on long was absolutely yeah. correct. So they are permanent, but it's what kind of permanent? <laughs> and if it's correspondence between two non-agency heads that's routine, it's going to be a lot shorter. Yeah. Okay. Mm. All right. So All right. well done on that game. You you took your 30,000 points from the first game because you did double or nothing. I did, yeah. And you added all the points from this game. Unfortunately, in this game, the points were only by the number of years. So you got 33 points because permanent doesn't have any years. So oh. you have 30,033 points. Okay. All right. And, and what, I cash those in for... You'll cash them in so. in season five of Connecting the Dots. That's perfect. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the follow or subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. Yeah, no, it, I like, but so the trick question is interesting because, you know, it, by having so, so these nuances, I'm sure it creates challenges. So what are some of the biggest challenges for agencies when it comes to retention or destruction of the records? I'll choose my words carefully with this one. It's, it's almost fear of doing something wrong that sort of then makes them not, not do anything, which in a way is good because it's better to keep records 
rather than destroy everything when you shouldn't be destroying records. And it's trying to understand the functional schedule, which, I mean, it's it's a wieldy tome. And it's because, it, as the name implies, it allocates records by their function. It doesn't always follow what you might call logic, and you then have to try and think, where does a record sit? And I mean, the, the, the analysts here at the archives deal with this schedule sort of day in, day out. And we often have um, sort of internal discussions about where do we think a record would sit. So, I mean, we do appreciate that for, for an agency, it might not always be obvious, which is one of the reasons why the, the analysts do what they do and go out and educate and answer questions here. So that's one of the biggest ch 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 challenges, I think, is actually trying to work out where on the schedule a certain record type would fit. Mm -hmm. And there are, are there myriad challenges to just simply dealing with the basic action of having to retain a record. So when we call these dispositions, a disposition is the final destination of a record, either destruction, permanent retention in the office, or transfer to archives. So there's always these challenges with dispositions. One of the most obvious ones is obsolete media. We talked about records earlier that have a 30-year retention, a permanent retention. What happens if some of that permanent correspondence was written in WordPerfect? Can you access it today? Not easily. So obsolete media is a real challenge. And an example from the archives is we found in the stacks several years ago the minutes of a commission. And they had recorded these minutes on an audograph, A-U-D-O-G-R-A-P-H. If you haven't heard of that format, you're not alone. I would say 99.9% .9 of people alive today have never heard of this. It was a system that was around for a very short amount of time designed to record sound and data together on what looks like an album, but in royal blue. It's a very strange medium, and you need a very strange machine to create it or to edit it. You can potentially listen to it on a record player with the proper settings, but if you don't have the right settings, it may actually damage the disc, and who's going to be able to replace an autograph disc? So when we found it, we were like, oh no, if this is the record copy, what are we going to do? Thankfully, within the same box, we found where they had had the minutes in paper as well. So crisis averted for that autograph disc, but agencies come across this problem all the time, more commonly with floppy disks, VHS tapes, even things like CDs and DVDs where there's no longer a CD drive in a computer. Mm -hmm. Microfilm's another common one where they may have that in the agency and there's no longer a reader. And the agencies need to figure out what's on the, the uh, obsolete media to be able to figure out what to do with it, but just reading it is a challenge, right, Colin? Exactly. And, I mean, the way the law is written and the way the retention schedule they're written. If you can't identify what a record is, um, you obviously don't know what it is. You can't destroy it or get, or get rid of it because for all you know, it could be a permanent record. So that's a definite challenge. Yeah. On the opposite end of the spectrum, Colin and I see this all the time. With electronic records, it's out of sight, out of mind, and people let what I call invisible clutter build and build and build. With electronic records, you can just keep on proliferating, keep on copying, send it to everybody. You know, it's like those chain emails, but worse because they just keep growing and growing. If you have a file cabinet in your office that's literally overstuffed and falling out and, and things are falling over, you'll probably do something about it. But if your server on your SharePoint or your shared Google Drive or your email box is getting full, you're not going to really do anything unless the server tells you that it's about to be erased or you're out of space. And that is a challenge because when that happens, that can be a major issue. The financial cost of migrating data is not cheap. 
And when you have a lot of records that could have been destroyed years ago, then that's even more expensive. Plus, it inhibits agency efficiency. If you have all of these digital records, then you can't be sure if the record copy was ever destroyed because it could still be sticking around in somebody's personal drive. When there's a, per a public records request, you have to provide the record if there's a copy still in existence, even if you think it's destroyed. And finding that record might be difficult if you don't have proper file management. So having all those digital files and just in a clutter in your drive can be a real challenge. Then another challenge that uh, Colin knows a little bit more about is confidentiality. Again, going back to North Carolina law, I mean, it, a record is only confidential because the, the law says it is. And it's really... The, the confidentiality can come about because it contains personal information. I mean, the most common one we come across is social security numbers, especially because historically they were often used as a form of ID for either employees and certainly in the university records that we do deal with they were used as a form of student id so that's one of the more common ones we also have sort of the the, the obvious um health records that come that come under both federal law and also state law about what what can be re released some records by death de by definition are all confidential others it, it might just be confidential in parts so if there's a public records request or something like that the agency will then have to go through and re redact i.e get your sharpie out and just go through and mark out social security numbers or whatever else is in there that you can't release as a public record. I would also add that the statute says that most confidentiality sort of restrictions do, ex do expire after 100 years. There are some exceptions, namely prison records, but if you have, say, a personnel file or something that you still that you haven't destroyed after 30 years and it's, you know, from somebody from 1910 or whatever, you know, that's over 100 years, any confidentiality in that is expired. But in, in, in both of these situations, in, in maintaining confidentiality and in the question of digital media and clutter, it seems like file management is key. What do you think Absolutely. about that? Absolutely. There's a reason that we offer a separate workshop from our basic workshop on managing files and filing. And it's not just paper files either. It's all, like you said, it's electronic filing as well. It's critical to have what we call intellectual control of your records, which means that you know what it is that you have and where it is. You need to know if it's electronic, who has access to this document? When was the last time it was edited? Because that may change the retention clock. Are there multiple copies stored in various places? If it's paper, is there only copy that one paper copy? Is it reproduced somewhere else? Is it in a locked room? Is it in somebody's office? Sometimes there are calls for it to be both formats, especially if it's something that you might need in the event of a disaster. But if you don't manage your file uh, files, it's going to be very challenging. In digital, like I said, you know, if you don't have folders and files, you're relying on your computer's internal search engine to find files, and hopefully you have a name in the, like the file name that's usable. And all credit to technology, but we've all searched in our file directories for something, and it takes a long time, and it still doesn't come up with the file that we're looking for. So don't just rely on that mechanism. But in terms of physical files, it can also just be lost, period. If it's in the wrong file cabinet, it could be gone. And there, sometimes there are extreme examples. We've worked with an agency before that had a file cabinet that was taken from office to office, and eventually the key to this file cabinet was lost, and no one knows how to get into the file cabinet. 
The problem is the file cabinet is a fireproof cabinet, and when it was built, the fireproof cabinet contains asbestos. So trying to crowbar your way into this file cabinet is not ideal. So the, that agency will have to dispose of the file cabinet through specialized means. We don't really know what's in it, and it's not safe to check what's in it. And the people who are working there had no control over this, but ideally their predecessors 30, 40, 50 years ago would have realized, hey, the key's gone. Let's see what's in here. Or at very least, label the file cabinet so we can identify what records are in here. But at this point, it's a moot point. So file management is critical because you want to avoid situations like that. Yeah. And as Josh said earlier, I mean, there are public records requests, and that's a whole subject we could talk a long time about. But essentially... What the statute says is because these are, are public records that are owned by the public, the public ha has a right to view them and to inspect them. And so if you don't know what record you have, you don't know if you are fulfilling the public records request as you should be doing, because as, as Josh said, if a record exists, even though under the retention schedule it could have been destroyed you know, years ago, the fact it still exists, it's still subject to a public records request. Therefore, you need to have a good records management system, A, so you know what, what you've got, and B, that you're destroying records when they are eligible to be destroyed yeah and that so this the destruction piece that's interesting because you know earlier we said that there's two outcomes for a record one is retention two is destruction so what kind of methods can you use to destroy a record is that regulated yep again it's defined in law this time it's in one of the administrative codes but essentially there are or approved methods you can you you can burn them although more and more that is sort of pro pro prohibited by local ordinances but if you can burn them that's allowed you can you can shred them so you know and we we always we recommend the shredders that chop them up into small bits so that you can't then go through and tape them all back together again. Or the third option is to pulp them, which is what we do with the archives. Ours all go off and they get pulped and made into waste paper. And the fourth option is you can put them in a vat of acid. A vat of acid? I mean, yes. the, the other three sound pretty mundane. And, you know, you, you, I mean, burning, burning paper, that's probably the, the least of shredding. Everybody's done shredding, every, you know, pulping, that's recycling. That makes sense. But acid, what's that? Come on. That is the Walter White method. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 it is in the administrative code for a reason. It's because if a record, a physical record is environmentally compromised to the point where no one should be touching it at all, then you can get a specialized team of hazmat specialists to come in. I know I said specialist twice, apologies for the redundancy. But you can get the hazmat folks to come out and literally destroy the record in acid so that it's not compromising anything else by being burnt or pulped or shredded. So it's in there for a reason. To our knowledge, it is very rarely, if ever, implemented, but it is allowed for in administrative code. And... If you're an agency listening to this podcast who's planning on doing an acid vat destruction, please let us know because we would love to come and see it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah um, I, I'll second that. <laughs> but what an option that I didn't mention, because it's not on the list, is sending them off to the landfill, just putting them in normal waste. Because I think I'm right in saying it used to be allowed, but I mean, mm -hmm. but when you think about it, it's not. It's not destroying the record. It's hi It's hiding it away in the hole, in the albeit a very big hole, but um, it still exists. So te 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 
So technically, if you got a public records request for something that's in a landfill, you could be expected to go to the landfill to try and dig it up and find it because you haven't destroyed that record. That's that's wild. So that you fits know, into the other duties as assigned part of the sure, job. Sure, sure, yeah. the job description. Mm. I think I think it's it's that's wild because you're out there digging up holes to find this this one record because somebody requested yeah. it. I mean, that seems well. I said technically it's not been destroyed. Sure. Yeah. You know, so you know, is there it, sort of like somebody's job to go out there and test the soil to see if it has decomposed properly, <laughs> or am I? So, to our knowledge, no agency has been guilty of this since that policy was changed. It's based on a court ruling that involved a civil case that wasn't government. The government wasn't involved. So, to our knowledge, no, uh, that's not a, a day job of anybody in a state, in a state or local Good. agency. Thankfully. Because it be- probably would stink. Because yes, it very much yeah. would. But given that that is the, the standard of the law of the state, we always tell all agencies we don't want you to become the case law. Sure. So that, that makes sense too. Uh, yeah. So don't don't become the agency that has to hire somebody whose <laughs> job is waste paper recovery expert, whatever term they would come up with for the, for the job. But we, we failed to mention that's all just for physical needs. Yeah, I mean, because electronic gets a bit more complicated, especially if it's got, we talked a bit earlier about confidentiality. I mean, if, if that's in in a record, the what the law then says is the, the physical medium has to be d- 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 destroyed, which with the four examples we talked talked about for paper, not only destroys what's on the record, but destroys the record itself. With electronic, as hopefully people will know, if you hit the delete key on a computer, it doesn't delete anything really. It just breaks that link. So the computer doesn't go to find the file, but the file will still be on the server on the hard drive or what server. So what you need to do is to, you know, wipe the hard drive. There's, you know, electronic scrubbers you can get um, of software and it will wipe wipe the drive. In the case of us a confidential records, you need to destroy the medium as well. So if it's the if you still got some old Floppy disks, you know, you, I spent days doing it. You, you can cut the disk up so it, you know, or break the disk up so that it cannot be used. Um, if it's a hard drive, we actually know of some police departments where they will put a, a hard drive on the range and use it for target practice, which is, you know, will certainly destroy it. Less extreme, or maybe more extreme, that there are these big things that um, that will crush a hard drive, and so to to then render it inoperable and in making it impossible to restore that data. If you've seen the videos of a hydraulic press, picture that, but instead of a press, it's a spike. That's what we're talking about. Mm. So, There's no coming back from that. No. Definitely yeah. not. It's, it's like being a royal in the French Revolution. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Okay, so that's, that's the destruction of records. How about records that, do come, that can come to the archives? How does the archives determine if a record belongs in, in the archives? And is there a method that guides the decisions? Well, the initial method is the retention schedule. There are some records on the retention schedule that are automatically transferred to the archives just as a matter of course. So for example, speeches from by the governor are automatically archival and will transfer to the archives, usually when governors change administrations is when they transfer over. Oftentimes, it is more of a gray area and it can be initiated by the agency. So a good example, we recently assisted the Department of Public Instruction in moving a warehouse and they held records within it and we came out and helped them evaluate a lot of materials from a former information bureau that DPI had pre-internet for dispersing information to teachers and administration across the state. We 
look through a lot of file cabinets to find um, one record center box worth of archival material that were brought it in. But how we decided what to bring in is literally Colin's primary job. So I'll let him take it from here. Yeah, because as you said at the start, John, my job is the proposal archivist, which as the name suggests, I get involved with the, with the records analysts to, to appraise records and it's primarily what the retention schedule has as a disposition is something called permanent appraisal required, which, as I think I said before, I mean, those records are going to be kept. What the appraisal will determine is where they're kept, whether they stay with the agency or whether they come to the archives. And one of the key sort of con considerations is their historical value. So, I mean, are they significant documents? So, you know, if it's a proximation by the governor, say, that's obviously historical. Um, but the, the danger is, if you use the word historical, you automatically think, old and that's not the case i mean the prime, prime example is what's gone on in the past you know two and a half years with covid that normally we wouldn't think of an agency's sort of policies procedures workflow as being historical but if you go back to sort of march 2020 when everybody was then start starting to revise their procedures because of COVID, working from home, et cetera, et cetera, the, those normal, routine, almost mon mundane procedures suddenly become historic because the, um, either it means that it, hopefully we won't go through something similar again, but if an agency wanted to go back and look at what they did in 2020 because of a similar event that those records would still be there similarly if we if the records come here to the archives researchers have them available to go through and learn what people sort of did for the covid19 pandemic which is akin to what they do with records from the 1918 influenza pandemic. And of course, as, as you know, we've been doing this whole series of oral histories for COVID exp exp experiences because we do want to capture this. And I mean, at the very start of the pandemic, we in the ar archives did sort of educate the a a agencies you need to be aware of this. This you are creating historic, historically significant records. You need to keep them. Yeah, and sometimes I mean, COVID is a a good example because it's it applies significance to well, literally everyone on Earth. But there can be archival items where the significance is much more statewide or significance for that agency. So. If there was a, a significant event that happened, then the routine records that were created about that event might become archival. So for example, the Department of Labor, any records that they create relating to the Hamlet fire, which was a major industrial fire that took a lot of lives in the early 1990s, the fatality reports would already be permanent. But anything routine, like evaluations of the working conditions, evaluations of the plant, investigations, anything like that, that's also archival. And some of that stuff is already here. A lot of it will be coming uh, when labor is finished with it. Uh, but that's the kind of thing that has statewide significance that is going to be archival because of its nature. Yeah. So it goes into that gray area, and then we appraise it to have historical value. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the other things we would look at uh, things like, do we already have it? Obviously, we don't want to collect the same things over and over again, and you might get a similar record from several agencies. As Josh said, did, does, it, does it have 
relevant for the whole of the state? And or does it record a significant event if say, there was a hurricane that hit the coast and there was a state agency that were involved in that? We would probably want, want, want to keep those. And if it links to prominent people or anything like that. I mean, what it really comes down to is if they come to the archives, the records, the catalogue, which I know you're going to talk about in a subsequent podcast, but that means that they then go, they become accessible to the public through being on our website, through our catalogue system, the records are processed, they're, they're arranged, they can be easily found. And so one of the things I always sort of have in the back of my mind is, you know, despite what the retention schedule says or anything else, is would, if I could put my mind in, in the mindset of a researcher, would this interest me for my research, you know, in a hundred years' time for whatever I'm doing with the history of North Carolina? North North Carolina, because essentially what we are doing is preserving the key records of the state. Yeah, I mean, so that, there's a lot going on in those judgment calls, and you know, it, it, people think of archives as as holding on to the past, but they don't really notice that in order to hold on to the past, you have to be in the present, collecting it and making those decisions. What you just said is a really good summation of that point, and then. Mm. You know, we, we've decided that a record is, is archival. We want to bring it over. We have to transfer it from the agency. Who's responsible for initiating that process? That is um, initiated by the agency. So we can encourage agencies to transfer materials, and we often do. But ultimately, it is on the agencies to determine when the record is no longer considered active. In other words, when they no longer need it. We certainly don't want to take a record from an agency if they're still using it or referring to it on a regular basis. If an agency has determined that a record is no longer active, but it is archival, they will contact us and say, we want to transfer this item. And when I say item, it's because while the functional schedule is for one agency, when a record comes to the archives, we have to translate it into a different series number which is how we arrange all of the items here in the archives. So, for example, the correspondence of one agency head might be item 45, and a different agency's correspondence might be item 565. We have to, so we translate that to that number, and once the agency has contacted us, we have a very great team here in the, in the State Records Center under the direction of Chris Denning, who goes out and retrieves those materials or receives them when they come into the archives. Chris wanted me to, to make sure that people know that when those materials come in, we provide boxes so that all materials are in the same box that will fit on our shelf, so we don't have to worry about cramming boxes that don't fit. We create proper labeling, so we have all the proper information on each box. We also even provide regulation tape uh, for the box so that they'll be all the same the agencies pay a minimal fee for those supplies. Uh, that's just the cost of the supply. Um, but we make sure that everything is uniform in the record center. And then Chris and his staff will either go to the office and pick up the records, or they will receive them if they bring them to our record center here in downtown Raleigh next to the governor's mansion. We do also take electronic records, of course. That's a different process that works. With, you work with our digital services team. It's a bit more technical, so I won't get into it today. But just suffice it to say the agency would still initiate it, and then our staff, especially our digital services staff, would arrange for that transfer. And I would also add that, I mean, the records are not only transferred physically, whether it be paper or electronic or photographs or whatever, but they're also transferred legally. When a record gets, uh, gets accessioned into the archives, collection the archives takes legal ownership of that record and legal responsibility for it which means that if an agency transfers a record the archives then becomes responsibility responsible for any public records request for that record so i mean if 
if something came from DHHS, say, the agency could then turn around and say, well, we no longer have that record. You need to go through the archives. And instead of going through the public records request like you would with any other agency, you then would go through our search room, which is what the rest of this series is going to be about because we're going to talk about getting those materials ready for researchers in the next episode. And then we're going to talk about how folks can find those materials and when we put them online for people to, to, read, at, to read from home. But all of this leads from that point when we've gotten that box or that hard drive into our legal and physical custody. And everything has to go through that step before anything else can happen. I mean, it's terrific. What a journey. I mean, we learned a little bit about the legal side, a lot about the physical side. We learned how things get appraised, some of the challenges that exist, and even a little bit about acid vats. I mean, we have it all here today. That's, that's, that's great. But still, as you said, Josh, we ha- there's a long way to go before the public can efficiently access records through the archives. Then in the next step of our journey, uh, connect with us as we look at processing and description that transforms an, a document into a series. And thank you for listening to this episode, and stay tuned for the rest of Season 3 of Connecting the Docs. And thank you both for Connecting the Docs on this episode. Thank you, John. Thank you. Finally, thank you to our guests, Colin Reeve and Josh Hager, to our producers, Brooke Chuka and Shauna Carr, and to the voice you hear at the beginning and end of each episode, Judy Allen Dotson. Thanks for joining us this week on Connecting the Docs. Make sure to visit our website, connectingthedocs.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our blog, History for All the People at ncarchives.wordpress.com.